Hello, you're listening to the Hammersley Brothers e-commerce podcast. If some of our discussions and tips are working for you, why don't you grab a 15-minute call with us at ecommercecall.com. We'll see whether we can help scale your e-commerce business. We will quickly see if we're a fit or whether we can recommend someone else to get you where you need to go. The worst case is you'll have a fun 15-minute chat and regardless, you'll come away understanding a lot more about your business. Book a call at ecommercecall.com. Hello and welcome to the Hammersley Brothers e-commerce podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the CEO of Pricing, which is a pricing tool for e-commerce to go through the advantage of using such a tool and to kind of dive into when it makes sense to use a tool like this. So let's get started. Hey, Burke, how are you doing? Fine, fine, Mark. What about yourself? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. Welcome to the Hammersley Brothers e-commerce podcast. Right, it's just me today, not my brother. He'll be asleep. Okay. Um, it's, it's quite early there for you as well. But uh, anyway, Burke joins me from a company called Pricing. Um, so why don't you just introduce Pricing and um, tell people a little about what it does? Because people, I guess people probably haven't heard of it or sure. may have been seen it before or but, sure, sure, yeah, sure. just fill us in. Yeah, first of all, thanks a lot for having me, Mark. It's it's a pleasure to be with you on the show. So just, just briefly, pricing is a competitor price tracking and dynamic pricing software that's built on top of this competitor price tracking part. So we essentially help e-commerce companies of all sizes from all around the world to automatically track their competitors' same products across different channels so that they can have this competitive intelligence and they can come up with the optimum price point for their products. But also on top of that data intelligence gathered, we let them define some rule-based uh, like pricing uh, like algorithms so that they can actually automatically reprice their products on the fly. And we like to call it like, uh, you know, helping merchants of all sizes to price like Amazon in a way because, you know, Amazon has this sophisticated pricing algorithm built in-house with, you know, hundreds of engineers. But, you know, those small two people, three people Shopify stores or, you know, small stores don't have that capability and bandwidth. So we try yeah. to sort of level level the playing field, at least in the in the domain of pricing. Awesome. So, I mean, I've done a bit of pricing analysis myself. I'm, I mean, do you find do you find that a lot of customers that come to you are just doing it manually at the beginning or are they kind of using other tools or, you know, is it do you find people still doing it manually? So, yeah, we, we still see the majority of the people doing this manually, but I think that the right way to put it is actually just breaking things into three uh, about, the, about the status of the customers that are getting onboarded by us. So the, the, the main use case is just like you said, doing this manually. And this is only applicable for, for, for use cases where you have only a handful of products, not necessarily thousands of products in your assortment, and you don't really have a wide competitive landscape. So let's say you have five, ten products in your assortment, or... You have actually thousands of products, but you only focus on the top 10, top 20. So this is the use case for manual. And obviously, needless to say, this is really limited, like literally yeah, limited you because you just, yeah, you just yeah, limit you need a team. Yeah, 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 because yeah. I was reading one of your case studies and it was like someone was monitoring like 20 products and they had 16 people or something doing just true, 20 true, products. True. Yeah, that's, they, yeah. you know, those guys are Orami from Indonesia and they, they literally had an army, a team of like uh, employees in their price monitoring team, as they called it. So there were, I think, 16 people involved in monitoring all their 
you know, best-selling categories uh, across, across the competitive market. But like I said, manual tracking is just one piece. You know, the most striking part is actually where we, where we notice that companies are doing nothing about this. So they don't really do anything about competitive, competitive intelligence. So they literally apply cost-based pricing on top of what they are charged by their suppliers. So this is actually sort of like lost uh, approach, I, I would call it, because you know you, you can either underprice or overprice yourself unless you have any intelligence from the market. Or like you said, some companies are using you know other third-party tools other than pricing, or you know, some of them interestingly build this themselves, which I'm also against of, honestly, because you know, building your own technology does not really make sense if you can actually you know afford this and if you can actually outsource this. Because I believe you know, e-commerce companies, retailers should do e-commerce and retail only, and then just delegate the rest to the other experts in the area. Mm. It's but, also yeah, very like, hard. Mm -hmm. It's very yeah, hard yeah, yeah. to do it's, because it's, it's, it's you know, it's it's not super hard to build, to be honest, an engine which actually at least starts monitoring data, but maintaining that. This is this is a typical software use case. So you feel like you can build something nice, and you see that you actually already built a prototype. But you imagine, you know, mistakenly that that will be the end of the project, so it will live forever. Mm. But that's never the case. So you really need to yeah. maintain that, update it, and so on. And this brings, you know, operational costs. It's not just a capex; like it's not just few developer hours. Yeah. You well, I think it's it's kind of easy to kind of scrape a website like another e-commerce site. So, like that's not too hard. And I guess that you might think, oh, I could do that and stuff. But what, what, but when you try and like say for Google shopping, for example, and you're trying to scrape Google shopping, Google does not want to be scraped. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like how you do that and how you have to get the servers to kind of dis pretend you're a real person and all that stuff. That is a whole minefield of, of, of engineering excellence that you need to learn how to do that. I don't want to even have to think about, I don't want to have to go by proxies and mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. right proxies and have thousands of servers and all that kind of stuff. And then it not work. And then Google figure out that this is, this is how we're doing it and then have to change all that, that, yeah. I don't want to have anything to do with that. You know, that, yeah. so therefore that's your job and that's what you'll do. And that you're obviously trying to keep one step ahead of all that. And that, that, you know, it's trying to even scrape Amazon. If you try and scrape Amazon, everything just disappears mm -hmm. on it. It's, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, yeah. 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 And imagine, imagine, imagine doing this for hundreds of thousands of websites. So not just, you know, Amazon, Google, you know, just yeah. quite a few. Because for one e-commerce company, yeah, you will have like 10 to 15 competitors. So it, it might look manageable, at least in the beginning. But doing this as a vendor, you know, requires you to scrape data from hundreds of thousands of websites across the world. So that really requires yeah. scalability, agility, and all the stuff that you mentioned, you know, all those proxies and stuff. But that's really yeah, an area yeah. of expertise in computer science. So I don't expect an e-commerce company to crack that and build a technology yeah. matching our capability. And not, and not yeah. only that, because I know, I know one of my friends has been using you for a long time. And mm -hmm. now every time he finds something, they report it to you and you go yeah. and fix it. So mm -hmm. you must be getting information coming in from all your clients all the time. And then you're going, mm -hmm. oh, well, if that happens, then we do this. So there's mm -hmm. all these different use cases, all these different little like, oh, it's doing like that. And you've got to do it like, so, and, and the, the algorithm, one of the algorithm, the code will be learning from that all the time. So over time, it's just getting better and better and better. True, true, and if you true. start and try and do it yourself, you've got to go and learn all those little, little things and try mm -hmm. and do the, all those little nuances that can mm -hmm. happen. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's mission critical data for a lot of companies, isn't it? True, true, so, because people really act upon that data. Like I said, we, for example, also provide a dynamic pricing engine, which utilizes all these competitor prices. So 
you, you essentially reprice your products according to the validity of the data being generated. So, you know, if you, for example, collect broken data, wrong data, you will then reprice your prices uh, according to that wrong data. So, you, you know, you will just come up with those ridiculous prices that we sometimes <laughs> encounter on the internet. You know, when you go to a product yeah. page, you sometimes notice, you know, multiple zeros at the end of the price. So that's actually sort of glitch that, that occurs out of these type of broken technologies, I must say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like bar of chocolate, $40,000. Correct. Yeah. Unless, yeah. unless it's really premium, you know, maybe some cases there, there are really, you know. It's probably, they, they, someone yeah. was probably buying chocolate for that much, will, yeah. you know, not me. So okay. uh, what, uh, if you're an e-commerce site, uh, what kind of, like how many number of products does it become interesting like you know mm. if you say someone came to you with like three products you'd probably say mm. like no it's just not mm -hmm. no point unless they're having to kind of do it against a lot of the competitors but what, mm -hmm. what kind of typical amount of products do people have before they mm -hmm. kind of think of yeah of yeah good question matching? good question i think we can we can really you know follow this uh, again with the manual manual tracking discussion because you know in case you have some some products let's say assortment and also obviously a competitive landscape not as wide as, you know, uh, like say, uh, the, the, unless that's not manageable manually, then you need some automation because, you know, unless you are limiting yourself with some manual, manual, manual tracking, you certainly need some automation because for example, if you track only like three products across three main channels, it makes three to three, uh, which is like sort of nine price checks in a day, I don't know, in a week. So that's honestly re really manageable. By, by just, you know, this can be managed by someone in for, for, I don't know, 10 to 15 minutes per day. So in case you're okay to allocate that person's 10 to 15 minutes per day to that job, obviously. So, mm. you know, even 15 minutes is actually not, not negligible in today's job market because you are paying those people, the smart people mostly, uh, to analyze your marketing channels and, you know, all those analytical stuff. But this is a terribly repetitive and, you know, error-prone task where you go to all those competitor pages, copy-paste and stuff. Yeah, so still very manual. Yeah, yeah, I believe I believe if the range is something more than like I don't know 100 price checks per day, so which is like 10 products, 10 competitors, I really believe that the cost of you know both the opportunity cost and the you know real cost of allocating this task to an outside outside vendor makes sense. So if you have like more than 10 products, more than 10 competitors, then you better outsource to a different vendor, outside vendor. So. Uh, I, this is a question that, that, that interests me because like there's a, there's a company in the UK called Lenstore. They're not one of my clients, but they, if you go onto their website, you might see their content lenders for like 50 pounds or whatever that is. But if you go into Google shopping, you'll see the price is like 43 pounds, 40, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see that quite a lot? Like different pricing across different channels, like yeah, on Google yeah. shopping? Yeah. Mostly, mostly for Google shopping. Yes. Because I think people, people are really doing this, doing this smartly because you can really price your products depending on your, how to say, like segmentation of your customer's price sensitiveness. So sensitivity, for example, if you are a shopper that's mainly buying things from Google Shopping, that's a huge signal that you are a price sensitive consumer. So you really spend some time on finding the best deals online for a particular SKU. So the best way to market to that segment of the customer base is obviously being competitively priced. But for the rest uh, of the traffic you generate, like either organically to your store, maybe via social, you know, that customer is, I would say, more loyal to your brand because they ended up at your brand store instead of a generic, you know, let's say, mm. uh, like uh, Google Shopping kind of channel where you have all these different options. Then, yeah, charging maybe 
undiscounted price, a more premium price might make sense. And this really happens quite a lot with our customers as well. So, and in, you know, from, from scraping perspective, sometimes they also request us to scrape two prices for their competitors because they want us to get the data, for example, for, from Google Shopping for that particular competitor. But also at the same time, they want to see the original price that's supposed to be scraped from the competitor website. So yeah, this is, this is quite often, but I would say this is mostly limited to channels like Google Shopping, where you have this price yeah. comparison context. Yeah, because it's like the world's biggest price comparison True. site. So everybody there is very price sensitive. And also the impressions are given to the people with the lowest price. It's just True. the way the algorithm works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it makes sense. And then if, if like the content lenses, if someone's going to come back and buy and say, I'm just going to stock up, I'm, I'm happy with this company, you're less mm -hmm. price sensitive than you were the first time. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. the other question is, is, is interesting is then it comes down to like, because I know you do a lot of, you not only just track the price, but you also, um, you know, you've got a tool that actually will reprice it for you on mm -hmm. your on your site. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that you have to be the cheapest, or is there like a range that you kind of be to, or does it does it depend? Yeah, actually, you know, I I mentioned that you can segment your customers into two, like price sensitive ones or maybe the pre premium ones. So the, the same can be interestingly done for your assortment in a way. So some of your products really need to be competitively priced because you know that there are there are i don't know quite a few competitors in the market selling the exact same product so for them you really need to be you know repricing yourself mostly as competitive as possible but for the remaining parts maybe you don't really have that much of competitor listings uh, so in that case really applying the same discount without really analyzing this really puts you into a situation where you leave tons of money on the table. So you become unnecessarily cheap for those products where you don't really need to be that cheap. So we really encourage our clients to test out these uh, like hypotheses. So they really try to distinguish these different, you know, product categories like competitive products or premium products. So for the premium ones, like I said, you don't really need to be that uh, like cheap uh, versus the competition. I mean, even having them in stock and even actually marketing them as a retailer is actually a competitive offering at that point. So you don't really need to discount them. But for the other ones, and you know, if we take things into an extreme scenario, you might even need to be a loss leader in some cases. So for example, in case of Google Shopping, let's say that you want to generate additional traffic to your store. And you can do this in, you know, obviously by myriad of things, by myriad of tactics. And one tactic is actually picking one of the most popular items in your assortment also in the market and, you know, uh, pricing this really competitively on Google Shopping and driving a lot of traffic. And you will maybe maybe making loss for that item, each and every item sold. But, you know, like you said, with, with some additional sales you make with that product, you generate additional traffic. That might also buy other things that you can recommend in the, in, in the process, or you might, you know, acquire the email of, the, of that customer and you might make them more loyal and then actually remarket them those premium products or maybe widely, sorry, private label products uh, afterwards. So it really, it really depends. I yeah, would so say. like so. the content lens, the content lens example would be a yeah, good one yeah. because like, mm -hmm. they, they, they know that people come and buy, but once they're happy with them, they'll just go and they'll just can, you know, maybe they'll, you know, be the lifetime value will be like seven times higher than the initial purchase. So, yeah, so it makes is, sense to get the first sale and, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then sell it to them. This is, yeah. this is absolutely not cheating, but this is obviously creating a better first impression, let's say. So you just really attract the customers with a really good discount, but then you actually can convince them without that discount. And that's actually the best way to improve your lifetime values uh, across the board. 
So which, I mean, I know you do globally. So which countries are the most competitive? Where, where do they, do you find that the, you have to do the most changes most often and yeah. all that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I, I, I would categorize them as, you know, comp countries where Amazon has a stronghold. So you like US is obviously the country where you have this pricing algorithms most widely used. So, you know, people, people typically want to benchmark themselves against Amazon and actually if they can, obviously they want to reprice themselves against Amazon and, you know, Amazon changes their prices for, I don't know, once in every 10 to 15 minutes or so in cents. Wow. So not necessarily mm -hmm. in dollar terms of, you know, even they just change the last digit of the price point. So yeah, I would call price change frequencies are way higher than average in the US, in the UK, and also in, in you know, in, in your context, for example, Australia is also gaining power because, you know, Amazon is also, you know, somewhat, somewhat there. And, you know, there are also some other big retailers who are adopting this type of, you know, dynamic pricing engines. So, yeah, I, and also another dimension is obviously, so this is obviously the supply side of things. So if you have strong retailers that have dynamic pricing capabilities, it makes the market more dynamic than usual. But also from the demand side, so if we are actually in a country where you have a huge price sensitive, you know, consumer base, then you also need to adapt to that. So for example, in, in, in our country, for example, in Turkey, we, we, we really have a, you know, solid price sensitive consumer base and retailers are also sort of forced to adapt to that. So they really need to apply discounts all the time. So here in every week, you have this special discount week across, across different channels. And this is also the same sort of in Southeast Asia, I don't know, most of MENA region and so on. So it depends either on the sophistication of the retailers in the country, but also at the same time, the, the characteristics of the consumer base in that country. Mm. So, it's, and, and you, I guess you're seeing that it's accelerating. Uh, things are getting more dynamic over time than they were. So like five years ago, it wasn't as dynamic. Now people are getting a lot more, a lot more savvy and smaller mm -hmm. people are being able to price match, which they couldn't do before. So it's becoming yeah. more important. True, true, true. Um, so in terms of pricing, you know, you talked about Amazon changing every 15 minutes. Um, I guess that small e-commerce site wouldn't need to update that often, but how mm -hmm. often would they update their prices? So actually, uh, we, we, for example, follow, you know, tested this out by testing eight times a day, once in every day and so on. And we actually found four times a day to be the sweet spot in terms of capturing the, you know, most price changes per cycle, I would say. So when we, for example, monitor the market for eight times a day, we don't really catch way more than we do for four times a day. And when we do once a day, we miss the majority of the price changes that we would otherwise catch with. So you, you got the sweet point <laughs> mentality. Mm. So we, we follow prices four times a day, but when it comes to changing your prices, I mean, the, the companies don't necessarily need to do that four times a day. For example, they don't really maybe want to alienate their customers by changing their prices too often for like, like Amazon, for example, for a few cents a day or so. But we, for example, also have a functionality. I don't want to market and sell our software, but we have this, we have this feature where they can put minimum thresholds for price changes they want to apply. So for example, if we recommend them a price change of let's say two cents down, three cents up, they can put a threshold like, I will only change my prices as long as you recommend me, I don't know, 10 cents, 10 cents up. Right, 10 so cents it's up. like a decent change. So it's yeah, not yeah, like yeah. just something as arbitrary. As long as it yeah. makes sense. And so, you know, when, we, when, for example, they apply this, we might notice those price, little price changes from the competition, like four times a day, 
but they don't necessarily need to react to that. But you know, we still get the data as fresh as possible. But the price yeah. change, repricing part really depends on the appetite, let's say, of, of the retailer. They can do this four times a day for even simple like digit changes, but they can follow maybe more decent changes, just like you said. Yeah, because I mean, it's probably just not going to change. But I mean, it depends on how price sensitive the consumer is. Like if they're buying something for like $200, it's mm -hmm. $200.03 or $200.04. It's yeah. like, it's not going to make much difference. They're going to be mm -hmm. looking at other things, deliverability, mm -hmm. time of delivery, all those yeah. kind of returns policy, things like that. Yeah, so and, and also maybe, maybe just add on top of that, you know, some, some companies also follow this psychological pricing thing. So they want to have their prices always ending with nines, you know, 99 cents or mm -hmm. maybe zeros if they want to make them look premium. I mean, this is a whole different subject and I don't want to go. You know, yeah, well, pricing is huge. Yeah, pricing yeah, yeah. is huge. And we right. did a tiny mm -hmm, podcast mm -hmm. on pricing, and people were like, the people who are really into pricing went, oh, You've done it. You haven't yeah, done yeah. this so much. You haven't done it. I'm like, Yeah, yeah but yeah. it'll be like, You could have a, do an entire podcast just on pricing. True. It would be true, insane. True, true. So, when, when, for example, you want to have this also to be specified, like you want to always, you know, end your prices with 99 zeros, making those little digit changes also don't make sense because if you make 96 instead of 99, you know, it, it will maybe look like three cents cheaper, but maybe in conversion power, you know, you will lose that 99 effect, if you know what I mean. So yeah, people also yeah. don't want those to be changed. And we also, for example, let them apply this type of psychological tricks with our repricing engine, which really helps with conversion, needless to say. Cool. And so in terms of the type of customer, let's say like, if you kind of get a new customer and they come in, you go, wow, this is going to make the most mm difference they like what kind of customer would that be do you think what's your sweet spot mm -hmm. where that you think they're going to make the most extra revenue from from implementing this what, what what's yeah. that kind of customer look like well we when we started up the company you know we had those categories lists written down in our sales pitch you know in our in our you know vc pits and stuff and they were namely like mom and baby consumer electronics you know pet food so we all envisioned these type of mainstream categories to be the leading ones and you know the most effective ones for us but afterwards you know after after a few years of doing business we noticed that you know it's not really the case so you know in, in positive way i mean when you have a product assortment which can be bought elsewhere you already actually have have, have a big upper big upper hand for this type of technology so you you know we started not to limit ourselves to a set of categories just crafted by our minds but instead, we actually follow this analogy. So if, for example, we face a retailer and let's say they have this carousel, you know, in, the, in their storefront. So you have like 10 major products, you know, staff picks, I don't know, 10 best selling items. So we, but, you know, with a rule of thumb, we just collect, copy and paste their three product names and paste them on Google. And if we actually uh, have more results than the first page of Google for that particular item, there's a huge return, potential return for that retailer because your, you know, their consumers are already doing that uh, mm. before buying that product. So we sort of empathically help them to actually react against their consumer behavior. So we started to scrap that idea of industries, you know, focus industries, but we really started to focus on these characteristics of the products that the retailer is selling. And it yeah. really depends on, 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 on the consumer's perspective where they just actually look out your website. Let's say they see that this price is 99, but they don't really convert right away. I mean, nobody does that. So they copy and paste the product name, try to find a cheaper alternative. So if this is actually a valid use case for the retailer, then this retailer has a, has a really, really potential uh, in this game. Um, 
so do you, I mean, do you find that, I think when people think about price matching, they think, oh, they're just going to reduce my prices down and maybe I don't want to just be the cheapest. But I imagine there's a lot of time when you're actually increasing prices because you don't need to be as cheap as you've got it on the website. Is that, mm -hmm. is that common as well? That's, that's, the, that's, that's my favorite sales objection uh, to handle, you know, in sales calls. So, you know, people also, you know, people, people typically want this technology. So they, they say, okay, we need this because our competitors have that. But after a few days of testing this out, they start to, you know, uh, fear about, yeah, uh, we are going to use this, but are we going to go into a, you know, race to the bottom, as they call it. But after a while, you know, when, when our, you know, test pr period proceeds, they notice that, yeah, we also typically change their prices upwards in scenarios where they really don't do this, uh, like at all. So, for example, you, you own, like I said in the beginning, you typically apply a cost-based pricing strategy where you pay a price to your supplier and you just don't really track the competition and you just add, let's say, 10% on top of that without knowing what the others are charging for. So if you only do that, you can either, like I said, overprice yourself and you can actually calibrate your prices downwards, but in maybe like 50% of the cases or maybe in, in, in more of the cases because people are shy about you know, adding profit margins on top of the cost. Uh, so in most cases, we actually notice that our customers are underpricing themselves with cost-based pricing. When they go into the market, when they start benchmarking their prices, they notice that they can actually increase their prices for, I don't know, 3%, 5% more, and they can still be the cheapest in the market if that's really strategy they want to follow. So in that case, so if you look at things from a supply and demand perspective, that increased price won't really eat away from your sales volumes because you will still be the you know, cheapest price, the top line in Google Shopping, for example but you will be making $3, $5 more for each and every you know, sale, which would otherwise just you know, be left on the, on, on, on the table. And this is the main use case where we help them to actually increase their prices. And the other one is also tied to our, you know, today's landscape, I would say. So we are in a shortage economy, as people call it. So stock availabilities are also a huge, let's say, competitive weapon, if that's the right. I, I'm an anti-militarist, by the way, and I don't like to say weapon, but you know, in this context, let's use it. So if you, for example, can monitor your competitor stock availabilities, and if you actually notice that they are not really in stock, you don't necessarily need to discount that item because even having this in stock is actually a solid messaging to your consumer base. So you can sell that item for a, for a full price. So we sometimes also help our customers to get rid of their existing discounts and bring them to their full price in cases where their competitors are out of stock. So, so you can see actually, very quickly if everybody else is out of stock. Yeah, and then you yeah can go. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And sometimes mm -hmm. you see people like the product might be on Google Shopping, but I'd be the price at cheapest, but it might be from someone like, like say I'm shopping in New Zealand, mm -hmm. but it's actually coming from America or it's coming from China. Whereas mm -hmm. like, it's sometimes difficult to kind of say, oh, well, we got to be cheapest, but then like that, I wouldn't go and buy it from them because it's going to come from America and it's going to yeah. take eight weeks. So how do you take that into account? Do you kind of just like say, oh, we'll just ignore that vendor mm -hmm. or? No, no, you, you, you know, ignoring is, I think not, you know, ignorance is bliss from time to time. But in this case, it's not really that because you can still consider that competitor, but you don't necessarily competitor, com, you know, consider them as any other competitor. So you can say that, okay, as long as we have these type of competitors in our landscape, 
we will still be 5% higher than them. So you don't necessarily need to say that I want to be $1 cheaper than the cheapest, but you can specify a set of competitors where you want to also be, you know, a little higher than their average, mm. but you can also be cheaper than the rest of the crew, for example. So you can, you know, ignoring will also not let you to, uh, you know, define the premium level that you would put yourself against those, yeah. you know, let's say- Because I guess there's a certain point when you go, oh, well, if it's that much cheaper, I'm Absolutely. happy to wait eight yeah, weeks. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you need yeah. to catch that level, just as you said, yeah. Do you, do you find, I mean, it's obviously for people selling products that other people sell. And also, I guess like some of my clients, they, they've got their own brand, but then mm -hmm. there's supply chain, they've got supply chain, their wholesale channel sells it. So they, they're effectively competing with themselves. So that makes yeah. sense. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the people we've sent to you recently does that. So. Um, they obviously want to look at their pricing, but it, let's say, does it ever make sense for someone to price match who aren't selling someone else's products? Like, mm -hmm, let's mm -hmm. say I've created my own range of bedding. Mm -hmm, do mm -hmm. I want a price match? I mean, do you see people doing that or not? I wouldn't, I wouldn't call that price matching in that context, but I would call this mostly like competitive intelligence because again, you can either ignore what the others are charging for. So not, not necessarily the same item, but you know, obviously your consumers are not only benchmarking, you know, Apple to Apple, uh, but they, mm. they, for example, you know, even buying while buying, you know, smartphones won't be a reliable example but for bedding, for example, they, you know, I think only 10% or maybe 20% of the client base for that brand is going to be loyal in today's economy. So they will always repeat buy and stuff. But for example, for the, for the other, other, other parts, they will at the end of the day need a bedding product and they, they will just Google bedding and they will end up with different brands, you know, different, you know, uh, like premium lines and stuff. So in that case, at least knowing a bit about the different offerings, you know, other price points for that, you know, uh, like competitor brands might also make sense. So one of the use cases we uh, like encounter with our software from time to time, again, this is not the most powerful use case, but some brands are actually signing up for our technology just to benchmark other brands, similar products versus theirs. So let's say they have this item, for example, for bedding, I don't know, 120 to 80, like centimeters, meters. Mm. So they actually, you know, identify a similar, let's say, yeah, so uh, category item and benchmark against that. So maybe this might be a premium one, or maybe this might be, I don't know, a cheaper version, but at least they will have some benchmarking in their hands. So they won't, for example, overprice them uh, themselves, mm. just, just without knowing. So anything. if they have like a key competitor, they think, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. either they buy from Dusk, for example, or they mm -hmm. buy from us. Yeah. And like, mm -hmm. so our main sheet, our double sheet, double white mm -hmm. sheet is mm -hmm. comparable. So if they change the pricing, I want to know about it straight yeah, away yeah, because that's, what I mean. that's mm -hmm. going to affect. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's going to affect. So that, that can be interesting. Mm -hmm. So um, you obviously scrape lots of different channels. So you scrape Google, you scrape Amazon, mm -hmm. eBay, and all those. What, I guess from a technology point of view, what is the, what, who's the trickiest? Mm -hmm. Who's the trickiest to scrape? Who's the, the, mm -hmm. the person that is the constantly mm -hmm. trying to kick you out? What's worse, mm -hmm. Google or Amazon? Well, frankly, I mean, this kicking out thing was something of a past for us. So we, we already overcome all those challenges. And I think now, now, uh, the technology is also becoming mainstream for the prevention side. So now the way we see the difficulty is in a way that really not to harm mostly small websites that needs to be scraped for thousand products because you know scraping Amazon is yeah, sort of just you know gonna, yeah, silently yeah, yeah, of, yeah, yeah yeah silently speaking next to them so you can totally over this is not easy but like I said this was a difficulty for us in the past now 
The challenge is really scraping, I don't know, thousands of products from a really small website where your visits will make a solid change in the traffic amounts for that, for that retailer. So I think this is, a, 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 you know, the biggest, uh, let's say, technological challenge we are facing today, and we are actually overcoming that by applying different, let's say, randomization techniques with our visits and stuff. But yeah, I, I think we are now looking at challenges which are mostly on the repricing side rather than scraping side because the company has been doing this for, I think, seven or eight years or so. So yeah. the direction we follow now is 100% towards repricing and maybe in a more sophisticated way, pricing optimization. Because maybe just, just to respond to your previous question, we are also working on an engine which won't only utilize competitive prices before coming up with a price, you know, new price point, but it will also crunch your past sales performance, you know, past traffic, past conversion rates. So even without knowing your competitors' prices, obviously it will know, but let's say you don't have any competition out there, you don't have any benchmarking data in hand, we will still be able to optimize your prices depending on your conversion fluctuations. For example, if wow. a product has been suffering from a conversion leak, then this really might signal a price change for that product where you need to discount a bit and so on. I think, you know, these type of challenges are, you know, today's challenge for pricing, I would say. Yeah, and is that going to be artificial intelligence you can bring into that yeah, or is it going yeah, to be more? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 I think it will, you know, I, I, I believe about 90 or maybe 95% of the products out there calling themselves AI driven are not AI driven. And we frankly yeah, yeah. won't start with AI right away, but we initially want to incorporate these type of parameters for, let's say, as, as rule setting parameters. So you might actually want to set your product prices according to the traffic of an item, conversion rate of an item, and you can configure rules to begin with. But obviously, after our users start setting rules uh, like that, then, yeah, we can incorporate some AI behind that because, the, you know, we will have enough data to play around and so on. But yeah, at the end of the day, it will be AI driven. Cool. That sounds really cool. So you, you sent me through a, a case study of just tools, yep. um, which looked quite interesting. So just, why don't you just talk me through what, what they were trying to do and, and what kind of, you know, what mm -hmm. the transition they went through and, and what yep, happened? Yep. So in their case, they, they are actually just following into this category of manual uh, benchmarking before pricing uh, part. So they, they, I think, were tracking about 100 or 150 of their products across some of their competitors. But they typically retail, I don't know, thousands of hand tools. So they are in this hand tools industry where you have these you know, major brands sold everywhere. So you have a huge competitive landscape when it comes to you know, finding products in different channels and different stores, and you have a huge assortment. So what they did in the beginning was just to actually, you know, writing down their key items, 100, 150 top selling products, and their key competitors, not necessarily the long tail ones, which also generates, you know, meaningful amount of revenue in this industry. So they were only able to get some data, I think once in every week or so, instead of once in every four hours. So with those weekly generated prices then, they were repricing their products on Excel files uh, before pricing, and then they were actually adjusting their prices once in every 10 days or so. But the problem was that, you know, there were already companies who were using technologies like us in their markets. And in their case, let's say for 100, 150 products they were, you know, tracking, let's say they collected price in, in day one, and they just changed their prices in day 10, but in day two, their competitors would have already changed their prices. So the data that yeah, they yeah. were, adapting to was sort of like old and irrelevant if in, in some cases. 
So this was the, the, the main issue that they were facing. So they were trying to be competitive, but at the end of the day, they were not really being so. And the other part was obviously for the remaining assortment of their, of their, of their company. So they had, like I said, thousands of items where they had also long tail competitors. So by adapting, adopting some automation, like with our technology, they managed to benchmark all their assortment prices versus all their channels. So, and also after generating data four times a day, instead of once in every day, they were able to respond to their competitors' price changes also once in every day, instead of once in every 10 days. So this obviously brought a lot of, like you said, like you asked, price increase opportunities in addition to some discount, smart discounting opportunities. And, you know, at the end of the day, with all those time saves and also with all those you know, smart price increases, they made, I think, like 38 or 39x return on investment on, you know, what they just paid to us in terms of, by the way, profit margin increase. So I'm not just talking about, you know, sales volume increase or whatsoever. So they made uh, like 39 times more cash in the bank than they paid to us. So, and this is really no brainer because, you know, they, they already were doing this manually and they were seeing some value out of that. So really automating this, streamlining this, brought in more, more power. Yeah, it sounds really powerful, especially as you start getting into, you know, historical data and starting to understand, you know, whether we need to be the cheapest for that, that one at different times True. of the day and different times of the month and, you know, what's happening and who, which, you know, starting to work out which competitors actually drive the needle. Because you might find if competitor A is cheaper than you, then you need to be cheaper. But if competitor B is cheaper than you, we don't really need to care because it's not, Great. it's not. And I think there's, there's so much nuance to it that it's going to lead itself to some kind of algorithm that starts understanding that. And it's going to mm -hmm. be better than a human. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it just can cope with so much more, can't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what we envision really. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's a very exciting space. Yep. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on Burke. Uh, I, I've certainly learned a lot from, thank from you. the session. Lovely and, chat. Um, thank you. I hope, um, hope some people listening to this that reach out to you and, uh, start seeing what they can do with your uh, with your super tool yeah cool. thanks a lot mark thanks a lot for having me uh, have a great day thank you very much Cheers.